Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well done. Good morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. If we hadn't had a chance to meet yet, I would love to change that today. So maybe track me down afterwards. I'd love to speak with you, get to know you a little bit. Uh, if you have any questions about anything that you observe today or read from this text or hear in the sermon, I would love to speak with you about that too. It would be an honor and a privilege. Uh, I also want to let you know if it's your first or second or third time with us, we don't always have name tags, but we do have name tags on Name Amnesty Sunday. All right, and this is just a Sunday that we have once every couple of months to help each other remember one another's names. A lot of new faces around, and this is just a gentle way of uh, pretending like you know someone's name on at least one Sunday, okay? Um, so anyway, thank you for putting up with our quirks here. We, uh, we love that you're here this morning. Uh, in, uh, I want to say one other thing too. Uh, if, if you have never struggled with anxiety and depression, um, wait on it because it's coming. Uh, the, uh, the conference that we are hosting here in a couple of weeks was Ed Welch. I want to really highly recommend that you register for that. Uh, a few months ago, maybe as few as like six or eight months ago, I would have said, I'm not one of the kinds of people that struggles with anxiety or depression. Uh, and then things change and things shift and you really struggle and you wrestle with some of these things. That's why I say, if you haven't yet, wait on it. You will at some point. Uh, and if you don't, struggle with it yourself. Uh, there are other people in your life that will certainly struggle with it, and you can be there to help them and serve them in difficult times. And so, anyway, that's my plug also for the conference. Sign up for that thing. Uh, let's pack the house and sit under the teaching of the Word, led by our brother Ed Welch. Uh, in the years since we bought the current house that we live in right now, we've gotten probably a couple dozen pieces of mail that were addressed to the previous owner. It's pretty normal. I think we've moved into a bunch of houses through the years, and that's happened to us before. Uh, what is abnormal for us is the kind of mail that we've gotten for this guy. It, it hasn't been like junk mail uh, from the local pizza shop addressed to him. It's actually been some kind of like serious stuff. Uh, letters from uh, lawyers about lawsuits. Uh, letters from PennDOT about unpaid uh, Pennsylvania Depart uh, Department of Transportation, unpaid fines and tickets, lots of letters from EasyPass. Uh, when, when you have access to someone else's mail, you learn a whole lot about them in a hurry. 
Uh, if you were to filter through my mailbox over the uh, next couple of weeks, you probably discover a few things. That we are, I don't know, members at Costco. Uh, that our orthodontist apparently has access to every dollar in my account right now. Four girls needing braces. Y'all pray for us. Um, you discover that Roslyn Pizza really wants our business in the worst way. Uh, you may or may not find something from that traffic camera at that dumb intersection of Old York and Susquehanna. That is the worst, those cameras at that intersection. Um, you'd also see that I have an aging grandmother um, who is struggling to, to write uh, still in, in her old age, um, but still committed to sending me a handwritten $25 check every month, sweet woman that she is. What would we find out about you from your mail? Well, we have direct access to seven other churches' mail in the second and third chapters of Revelation. There's good, there's bad, there's ugly. Uh, there are some good commendations for some of these churches. There are some bad habits that need correction. Uh, and there is a reality uh, that if some of these churches don't heed the warnings of Jesus, they will meet an ugly end. Interestingly, each of these churches' mail was meant to be read by the other churches. Here in America, that would be a felony. Don't go digging in other people's mailboxes. But here we have Jesus encouraging this very thing, to dig into the mail of these other churches. Look at verse 7. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. So there is a sense in which all of these churches' mail is Trinity's mail too. We are carbon-copied. CC'd, as it were. So let's read their mail as if it were ours today. Let's hear the good. Let's be warned of the bad so that we can avoid the ugly. Each of these letters have the same four fields in them, just like you might see like in a modern day letter. You've got to, you've got from, you got the body of your letter, and then the conclusion to your letter. And we'll follow this formula uh, for each letter for each church. Except I'm going to add a CC field in there for us to remind us of our responsibility to uh, respond humbly to these words. So you've got the two, then the carbon copy, uh, Trinity Community Church, and then we got the from, the body, and the conclusion. And so as we unseal these letters week by week, we're going to find some disturbing overlap and I think some encouraging overlap as well. Uh, we'll see some things that Jesus would write to us at Trinity to correct us. And we'll, by God's grace, I think, see some things that Jesus might write to us to commend us. So let's get our collective letter opener out this morning and see what Jesus has to say to this first church in Ephesus. And just so you know, here's where we're headed. To the Orthodox but lethargic Ephesian church, uh, CC, Trinity Community Church, from Jesus, the one who walks among his churches holding the seven stars, the body of the letter, the big idea will be this. Jesus is pleased with sound doctrine, but pained by lethargic love. Uh, and then finally, in the conclusion, Jesus promises paradise to those who overcome. So this first one, this first letter was written to a church in the ancient city of Ephesus. Um, and if you read carefully there in verse 1, you'll note that this letter was actually written to the angel in the church of Ephesus. Now, there's disagreement about what this angel word refers to. The Greek word for angel just means messenger. Uh, so could it refer to a heavenly being? Sure, it, it could. There are other instances in the scriptures where an angelic being represents people or groups of people. So this star angel imagery 
uh, could be a symbol for the whole church there in Ephesus. Or it could refer to a messenger, maybe like a pastor of the church in Ephesus. Maybe his title was lead angel. What do you think about that? I like the sound of that. I'm Josh. I'm the lead angel of Trinity Community Church. (laughs) Pastors aren't angels. You know that. Uh, And if you don't, there's a beautiful woman right up here who could confirm that for you. I promise you. No matter which one John meant, whether the pastor or an actual angel, it doesn't really change the meaning of the letter or its function in the lives of those in Ephesus or in our lives either. Uh, Look at the positioning of these angels, though, in verse 1. They are firmly grasped in Jesus' hand. Uh, That's a word of comfort, I think, that they are in the hand of Jesus, but it's also a word of caution. I comfort my child in a crowded space by holding their hand and keeping them close. But I can warn my child when they're acting up with a firm squeeze of the hand too, right? Let them know they need to knock it off. Comfort and caution, both. Both are happening in this short letter too uh, to the Ephesians, and both are probably going to happen for us as well this morning. This hasn't happened to me, but I've heard of weddings before where the groomsmen will all secretly have a ping pong ball in their hand as they're coming into a wedding, and they will each shake hands with the groomsmen, uh, the groom, I mean, with the, with the groom, uh, and they will shake his hand, and he, he's not prepared for the ping, balls, ping pong balls coming into his hand, and they will shake his hand uh, back to back to back to back, so there's not enough time for like, him to stuff it in his pocket or whatever. So by the end of this whole charade, there's five or six ping pong balls that he's sort of like trying to juggle in his hand. Uh, and so... But that word for holds here in verse 1 does not reflect this kind, of like, this kind of holding, barely keeping things together, ping pong balls tumbling out of his hand. No, the idea is like this firm grasp. He's got it all together. He holds them tightly so that they may not be snatched away. It's like the difference between holding seven pennies firmly in your, in your hand and trying to hold seven ping pong balls in your hand. A big difference in whether or not they'll stay in your hand, right? Jesus holds his church firmly. Jesus holds this church firmly. This isn't my church. My name is not out there on that sign. We are firmly held in the Savior's hands, not in my hands. In the same sense, it's not your church either. We all have to remember whose we are. We are firmly held and we are firmly his. This particular church was firmly held by Jesus in the ancient city of Ephesus. So if you were to try getting directions to ancient Ephesus, the city doesn't exist anymore, you'd have to type in modern-day southwest Turkey. In its heyday, Ephesus was considered the most important Greek city and the most important trading center, uh, trading center in the entire Mediterranean region. Its value was especially in its accessibility by sea as it was located uh, near to the mouth of the Caister River, which was a tributary off of the Aegean Sea. Over time, the river developed this major silting problem, and eventually it killed off all of the oceanic commerce there for Ephesus because ships could no longer get into the harbor without getting stuck. So much silt built up that today the ancient site of Ephesus, once right at the Aegean Sea, is now seven miles inland. That's how big the silting problem was. Uh, Because of the silting, by the 15th century, Ephesus became completely abandoned. This is what it looks like now. But if you turn back the clock on that picture, you'd see quite a sight in Ephesus. Ephesus was a 
cosmopolitan, diverse, bustling, destination city. Think like New York City on New Year's Eve. Commercially, it, had a, it was a major trading center where all the great highways converged, converged of the, the ancient world. Entertainment-wise, it, it hosted and boasted uh, games each May that rivaled the Greek Olympics. But Ephesus wasn't only the hub of commerce and entertainment of the day. It boasted a strong religious presence that was the center of the Mediterranean world as well. Very much a non-Christian religion, though. Ephesus was the global center for the worship of a goddess named Artemis. Sometimes she's known as Diana. Artemis was a—it can kind of sound masculine, but it's feminine. Artemis, uh, also named as Diana. There was an an entire temple devoted to her worship there, and this was no ordinary temple. 425 feet long. It's like one and a half football fields. 220 feet high, uh, wide, 60 feet high. All of this architectural glory was supported by 127 exotic and intricately carved marble pillars given as gifts from kings around the world. 36 of these uh, pillars were uh, lined with gold and jewels and carvings given as gifts for its construction. Inside the temple was a shrine to this goddess Artemis, an image so beautiful it was said to have fallen directly from heaven. The site was so visually stunning that this temple boasted elite status as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Thousands of priests and priestesses served there, many of them prostituting themselves in and around the temple. Ephesus was a bustling but broken city. One of the philosophers of the time, his name was Heraclitus, lamented over the immorality and wickedness of the city, saying that its citizens were, here's what he said, fit only to be drowned, and that the reason he could never laugh or smile was because he lived amidst such terrible uncleanness. So as you might imagine, when Christianity was first introduced into this city of Ephesus, it became a disruption to the pagan economy centered around the worship of Artemis. You can find the story of Christianity's emergence into Ephesus in the book of Acts. There is a silversmith guy. His name was Demetrius, who had a pretty good business going on down in the markets of Ephesus, right there around the temple of Artemis. He centered his profession around the infatuation with this goddess, Artemis, and he made silver shrines for her that he would sell in the marketplace. So at some point, conversions to Christianity began to make a dent into his profits, uh, Demetrius would have nothing of this. And so he gathered the locals who had similar trades as his, and here's what he said, Acts 19, you can follow along. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of this great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And this is when the city flips out. The book of Acts continues. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging Christians through the streets. If you were to skip down to verse 34 of that text, you'd find that they continued this chant, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, for two straight hours. It's been a wild scene. 
So this is the godless context into which Jesus, through John, is writing this letter. Christians are outnumbered and Christians are under threat. Okay, so we've filled in the two section to this church in the city of Ephesus. What about the from section in this letter? Well, if you look closely, you'll notice that what Jesus emphasizes about himself at the beginning of not only of this letter to Ephesus, but of all of the seven letters, uh, the things that he emphasizes about himself are actually found in the description of his that we covered in chapter one a couple of weeks ago. I'll read it for us again here. Um, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in uh, in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And this next sentence here is the way that Jesus is described at the beginning of this letter to Ephesus. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Let me just make a quick plug uh, about our podcast as well. This is a, a good way for you to, if you're not able to be here for Sunday, to stay up to speed on the current series that we're in. It helps us Um, stay together in the word and stay together in the particular series that we're in. One caveat is that the first sermon in Revelation did not get recorded. There was a glitch in the system. So uh, I don't know, joke's on you. You missed it, I guess. But uh, if you want a copy of the manuscript, uh, as flawed as it is, I can send that to you if you're interested. If you missed the first week, I can send that to you so you can catch up with kind of the ground that we've already covered in Revelation 1. Um, So what is emphasized in this letter to the Ephesians? The seven stars that Jesus is holding in his hand. And also the fact that he walks among the lampstands, his his churches. And so we should ask ourselves why Jesus picked this part of his description to include in his letter to the Ephesians. Because he doesn't include that same part about holding the seven stars in his hand to the other churches. Why does he use that description in this letter? Uh, What is the commonality of stars and lampstands? Brilliance, right? Light, direction provided by the light. The point is that Jesus' churches are his lights in the world. The church is how Jesus shows the world a better way, the only way, his way. You can almost picture Jesus roaming the globe with these stars in his right hand, he himself invisible to the naked eye, but the brilliance of his churches on full display lighting up the darkness through the proclamation of his gospel. Isn't this why Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, you, we are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. It's okay for people to see the good that you do for the glory of your Father who is in heaven. What is our collective brilliance fueled by doing good in the world supposed to cast light on? The glory of our Father in heaven. Or like Paul says to the Philippian church, picking up on some of Jesus' star terminology here, Paul says, you should be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. You can probably see, based on the description of the city of Ephesus, why Jesus used this part of his description for the Ephesian church. They lived in such a dark and decadent and over-sexualized city. It was dark, and without the Christian Ephesians gospel light, it would remain in darkness. Okay, so we've seen the two, we have seen the from, and now let's transition into the body of the letter. First, just check out the way this letter opens. We probably skip over it too readily, 
I did it first. I think it's a little disturbing. Jesus says there in verse 2, I know your works. I know. What Jesus knows of this church is the only thing that should matter to this church. We can fool each other so well, but you cannot fool Jesus. If you think I look a little bit more put together this morning than I normally do, and I know that many of you do because you're making fun of the jacket that I'm wearing this morning. Um, if you think that I look better this morning than usual, the joke is on you because I only ironed the front of my shirt today in my sleeves. <laughs> my sleeves and not the back. I masked my messy wrinkles with this jacket. It's just covering up for weakness by wearing this jacket today. We fool each other so easily though, don't we? There's no fooling Jesus. He says, I know you like the real you, like the back and the sleeves, the wrinkles. Let us not preoccupy ourselves with how others perceive us because it doesn't matter in the end. It doesn't matter what you think of me or what I think of you. It reminds me of one of those songs that we sing together occasionally. We'll actually sing it together in a few minutes here. Favor sings a siren tune. So we've become a talent show. Favored from each other sings a siren tune to all of us. We want to be thought well of, so we put on a show to be perceived in a particular way. Instead, let us preoccupy ourselves with what Jesus knows of us. And the positive side of this is that because Jesus knows our works, it's okay if we don't get noticed for them. If all you ever do is hunker down in your little corner of the world, serve Jesus, but never get noticed, it's okay. Jesus knows your works. Irrelevance in the eyes of the world doesn't matter because you are seen by the eyes of Jesus. Your better reward awaits. Hang on, Christian. Your best days are ahead of you. The only people in the world that can confidently say our best days are ahead of us are the people who are in Jesus. And what, is, what does Jesus know of the Ephesian church? He knows some things that he wants to commend in them, and he knows some things that he wants to correct in them, commendations and corrections. And so here's our big idea for today in this letter. Jesus is pleased with sound doctrine, but pained by lethargic love. Jesus is pleased with sound doctrine, but pained by lethargic love. These are the two ideas that anchor the body of this letter. Jesus wants sound minds and loving hearts. Just two points in the body of this letter based on this big idea. Jesus is zealous for your head. Jesus is jealous for your heart. Zealous for your head, jealous for your heart. So let's start with our heads. What does Jesus commend about the Ephesian church? Well, their, their theological discernment, their sound doctrine. He said that their thinking and discernment muscles are really strong. That's a wonderful thing because Jesus is zealous for your head. Jesus is very pleased with how the Ephesian Christians protected the truth. And don't miss this simple thing. He was pleased with them, and he told them. If we'd all just follow Jesus here, our church would be a little taste of heaven. What's Jesus' tack here as he starts this letter? He points out an evidence of grace in the Ephesian church. Some of us are adept, like super adept at criticism, and inept at encouragement. But surely, 
If the perfectly holy God of the universe can find something good in the Ephesian church, you can find something good about this one. When's the last time that you found someone that is a member of this church and pointed out an evidence of grace in them? Hey, God is at work in you, and I see it in this way. Look, everyone knows all too well what they're failing at in one way or another. And sometimes we do need to communicate that. I support that. I get that. But some of us are way too good at criticism and pretty wimpy with encouragement. Most of us know our faults, but what most of us don't know and hardly ever hear is how, by grace, we are succeeding. Want to know why we don't know what we're succeeding at? Because we don't tell each other. We don't look for evidence of grace in each other. Let's follow Jesus' example and highlight evidences of grace in each other rather than finding something to complain about constantly in each other. And again, the particular evidence of grace here for the Ephesians was that they were hardcore about their doctrine. They labored hard like elite Navy SEALs, protecting the doctrine of their church. Jesus praises their steely doctrinal spines. He says, look, I know how hard you have toiled for this doctrine, not giving in to evil threats, patiently enduring criticisms inside the church and out for my name's sake, Jesus said, not succumbing to themselves, who call, to the people who call themselves apostles, trying to infiltrate the church with errant doctrine about Jesus. Down in verse 6, he even calls out a particular group, the Nicolaitans. No one is really sure what the content of this Nicolaitan teaching was, but it, appear, it appears that the Nicolaitans were followers of this dude named Nicholas. Many people believe that Nicholas was one of the first deacons that were ordained back in Acts chapter 6. Uh, so he was once really well thought of in the church. And uh, that this man who was once well thought of left the fold and began taking people astray. And Jesus, as we learned in the book of, uh, I don't remember which it was 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, uh, as we were learned in one of those letters from John, um, Jesus has a special disdain for people who pose like legit believers and then spurn the true Christ and then pull other people out of the church with them. This text says that the Ephesian church hated the Nicolaitans' works. They were in like lockstep with Jesus too because Jesus is like, I agree with y'all. I hate their works too. They were very, uh, very doctrinally perceptive and discerning people. There was a deep appreciation for robust doctrine in this church, and Jesus commends it. The Ephesians were doing just as Paul had instructed them before he left them. Maybe you remember this from Acts 20. This is Paul talking now, or uh, Paul being described. Now from Miletus, he sent, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I did not shrink from you, declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so... Now pay attention to Paul's closing words in this, in this text. I think the Ephesians must have like put them up on a plaque or some artwork in their, in their houses or in their church building or something because what Paul commends them toward here uh, in Acts is what the Ephesians did and it's actually what Jesus ends up commending them for. 
So he goes on. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know, here it is, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Nicholas, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken. They would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Some of us wonder, I think, why we don't have friends like Paul had in Ephesus. We wonder, if I ever left this place, would anyone even care? Would there be much weeping on the part of all? I think it might be because we are timid with our doctrine. We'd rather talk about the weather than humbly open up the word. The Ephesians were not this way. They clearly observed Paul's example, and they imitated it in their church too. I think the Ephesians were very word-centered, word-obedient people. They loved the word. They saturated themselves in it. They gloried in the depths of doctrine. They studied it backwards and forwards. We should be like the Ephesians. We should love doctrine, not yawn at it. If Jesus is zealous for sound doctrine to saddle our hearts and saddle our actions, how are you doing in pursuit of that? Have you lapsed into entertainment habits that prevent your pursuit of this? Turn from that. Get back to the book. I wonder if in Jesus' letter to us, in Jesus' letter to you, if I could open up your mail from Jesus, would he commend you personally? Would he commend us corporately for the same thing that he commended the Ephesians for? Robust, sound doctrine. When I first came on staff here at Trinity, it was my first time leading a church. And at the time, those of you who were here at the time when I came, I think you would agree with this, uh, we were trying to protect the church from folding all together. It was, it was on a nice edge there for a little bit. And more than that, obviously, folding, we wanted the church to flourish. And so I worked hard. And I worked long hours to make a good initial impression. Uh, you guys that are in here from that time can tell me whether or not that worked. Probably didn't. Um, but I, I wanted to make progress desperately in all of the areas of our mission and ministry at the church. But I found myself slouching into some really grievous patterns that I regret to this day. And if I'm not careful, can find myself slouching into even now with such grand visions of what I was hoping to see Jesus accomplish through this church here, in this church, and then through this church in, in Abington. Um, it was occupying my thoughts day and night. And so suddenly, rolling around on the floor with my kids uh, was a waste of time. Sitting down to play Uno got in the way of ministry. I don't think we were at Uno days yet then. It might have been like Candyland. And Candyland might have been a waste of time, I don't know, but... <laughs> Um, how could I go for a walk around the park with Miriam or the kids when there was a sermon to be written or improved? No time for tea parties with Barbies or date nights with Miriam when there's someone in the hospital needing help. Sadly, even when I was like physically present, I was mentally absent. More than a few times, I can remember sitting down together at the family dinner table, eating dinner together, 
but I'd be solving a problem in my brain, in the back of my mind, uh, absent from the conversation around the table. I guess my eyes would glaze over or something. I don't, I don't know what it looked like. Uh, maybe someone had criticized me about something that day. Maybe they were right. Maybe they were wrong. They were probably right. Um, but while my body was present, uh, physically present, my mind was absent, processing something other than the beautiful people that were right in front of me, desperately wanting my presence there in front of my face. I could probably spin this to sound noble. Oh, man, that guy was so committed to the ministry. He's giving his all to it. And I think there was some truth to that. But the point is that we can be, become so preoccupied with something good. A doctrinally sound church, great. A growing church, wonderful. Creating new opportunities for ministry and mission, amazing. But the expen- at the expense of my first love, terrible, terrible. My wife, my kids, I was so committed to protecting the flourishing of our church that I let the one thing go cold that meant the most, my love for my family. In those times around the table that I was present but not present, I could feel Miriam reach out and put her hand on my arm, and I could literally but barely hear her voice like cutting through the fog saying, hey, where'd you go? Come back to me. Come back to me. She wasn't just zealous for my physical presence. She was jealous my heart. Listen, Trinity, Jesus isn't just zealous for our sound doctrine. He's jealous for our loving hearts. I mean, the Pharisees were zealous for sound doctrine, but Jesus constantly gives those guys the hardest of times. He is definitely zealous that you believe the right things. Don't get that twisted. You should work really hard to understand the word in its beautifully and wonderfully rich teaching, but that's not all. Jesus is jealous for your heart. Here we find Jesus saying to us, corporately, what Miriam said to me personally, hey, where'd you go? Come back to me. I don't just want your head believing the right things. I want your heart loving me. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Grant Osborne said, They had lost the first flush of enthusiasm and excitement in their Christian life and had settled into a cold orthodoxy with more surface strength than depth. More surface strength than depth. Hmm. God protect us from this here. It's like we have enough strength about us to not let the bad theology in, the dangerous stuff, but if you were to somehow break through the surface, you wouldn't find much Jesus either. a scary thought. Yikes. Apparently, it's possible for us to be for sound doctrine, but for Jesus to be against us. The Ephesian church had become so preoccupied with protecting the truth that it fell out of love with the truth himself. Did you ever see that M. Night Shyamalan movie, Lady in the Water? If you haven't, You haven't missed much, I promise you that. I don't really even remember the storyline, but I'll never forget this really unique character, character, unique character named Reggie. Reggie constantly works out his right arm, but he leaves his left alone. So you can see his right arm is jacked and his left arm is puny, like my arms. Um, 
This is what the Ephesian church had become. Buff on doctrine, puny on love. Is this what we've become? Are you doctrinally on point, but lethargic in your love for Jesus? This question haunted me this week. Consider it quietly for just a moment. How strong or how weak is your love for the man, Jesus? Thank God there's a way to course correct here in verse 5. Look at verse 5, if you can tear your eyes away from the weird guy on the screen. Here's the correction, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And then there's a threat. Continue on. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do you know what this threat tells us? Jesus doesn't need Trinity even if we get our doctrine right. It's a jarring reality, isn't it? Jesus is saying, hey, where'd you go? Come back to me. Where else can we even go, though, church? Where else can we go but Jesus, who loves us like Jesus loves us? Jesus is the singular reason any of us have any hope right now. Our hopes are utterly bound up with this man. And yet, we too often find ourselves bored with him or unmoved by him. We've left our first love. I often reflect on that story Shailen told us a few years ago at our conference. He told us of asking an elderly saint in his church, a woman in her 90s, and he's like, do you love Jesus? And with a, a little tear tumbling down her cheek, she said, I love that man. I love that man. Do you hear how personal it was for her? It wasn't, I love the truth about that man. Ah, I love that man. To know him is to love him. To know him is to become obsessed with him. Because to not know him is to be condemned, justly condemned for eternity. Do you love this man? A few years ago, Miriam and I were at a little marriage retreat, and the counselor had us sit down and write 50 things that we love about our spouse. It was re-eye-opening, at least for me, towards Miriam. I don't know if it was eye-opening for her at all. Um, it's not like anything new or fresh occurred to me at that time, but it is easy to forget how just amazing I have it with Miriam. And so that little exercise reminded me it's easy to forget the way love felt at first, isn't it? So we take time to remember and to return to the things that we used to do when we first began to love each other. It's the same with Jesus. Do you remember what first drew you into the warmth of gospel light? Maybe we should all stop this afternoon for a few minutes and write down our list for Jesus. Jack Miller reminds us continue, to continually explore and revel in this fact he says, I am more broken and sinful than I ever dared believe, but in Jesus I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. This truth should radically reorient us to our first love. We need not find our worth in what we own and, what we, and how much we make or how well liked we are. Every human being ever has wanted at least two things desperately, to be known and to be loved. And the gospel declares that because of Jesus, we can have both. 
Usually one comes without the other in our human relationships. Think about this. We're either loved because no one really knows us, like how rotten or broken or lustful or perverse or hateful we really are, or we think that because we actually are known, then we can't possibly be loved. If you really knew me, you would love me. But Jesus both knows us and he loves us at the same time. That is a combo platter of pure, undeserved joy right there, Trinity. The Ephesians had sound doctrine, but they had left their first love. Jesus was pleased with their orthodox beliefs, but pained by their lethargic love. What are we to do when we discover this trend in our lives? We'll look down at verse 5 to see Jesus' prescription, and we're winding down here. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works which you did at first. So three steps here. Remember, repent, return. Remember, repent, return. Remember what it was like when you first learned of Jesus' love for you. Go back to that time. What was present then that is missing now? What has pulled your attention away? Remember that. And then repent. Repent of your distraction of your first love. Repent just means to turn. So whatever it is that has distracted you, turn from that and turn to Jesus. Return to the way you used to interact with Jesus in his word. Now, there is a, there's a reason the Ephesian church became a threat to the silversmiths. I wonder what scheme of the devil God is preparing us to threaten as we return to our first love. Don't you want to be a threat to the kingdom of darkness? Let's threaten the kingdom of darkness by returning to our first love. Well, we've come to the end of this letter. Look at verse 7. He closes with this. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, we're back to Nike again. If you were here for the first week, you'll know what I'm referring to. That word for conquer there in verse 7 is where we get our word from Nike, uh, our word Nike from. Nike is all about victory. Nike was the Greek goddess of victory. So Nike is all about victorious conquering. To the one who conquers their tendency to have buff doctrine but puny love. To that person, that person gets access to a special tree. A tree that enables eternal life in the presence of God. And so, I don't know if you've noticed this before, there's a tree on the very first page of Scripture. There's a tree on the very last page of Scripture, and there is a tree right in the middle of Scripture. The first tree condemns us to die through Adam's sin. The last tree offers eternal life in Jesus' presence in paradise. That's what's referred to there in verse 7. But how can we taste the fruit of eternal life from that tree? We come to the tree in the center of Scripture, the tree Jesus hung on. If you can go there in your mind's eye, see him afresh, on that tree this morning. His lifeless body hanging on a stick of wood shoved into the earth at the crest of a hill. Then see his body laid in a tomb. If Jesus' body stays there, if his heart doesn't begin to beat again, if his blood never begins to flow again, if his lungs don't breathe again, we would all be doomed forever pay for our offenses against the creator but if the pulse does quicken and if the blood does begin to pump and if the body rises and the lungs fill with oxygen then we know we know that our redeemer lives 
and we know we don't have to pay for our crimes because Jesus paid it all. Because Jesus conquered, we get to conquer. It's amazing. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, I know it's complicated and difficult, but we get stuck in the weeds and we miss the big idea of it. If you want to understand the big idea of it, you've got to look at Revelation through the lens of victory, of Nike. Revelation 17, 14. Then they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. I want to be with him, called chosen and faithful. Ultimately, the book of Revelation is about how we can enter into Christ's victory and claim it as our own. It is our responsibility to conquer a tendency to be content with learning truth over loving the truth. If you feel quite inadequate for this, you are in good company with me. Remember the grip that Jesus has on you. At the end of the day, we're going to do this imperfectly, church. So we rest on the victory Jesus has already won. There's this iconic scene in obviously history's best television show, Lost. Lost fans in here? How many of us? All right. The Lord bless you and be with you. I'm closing with this. Um, one of the characters, his name is Desmond, he can see the future and all like of the possible permutations of the future. And he keeps seeing another character, his name was Charlie, he keeps seeing Charlie's death. He's tried to think of like a thousand different ways to save Charlie, but he can't find one in all the different iterations of the future that he's explored. And so at night, in an intense desperate moment around a fire on the beach, he confesses to Charlie. And I'm really wrestling with what accent to do this in. Um, he says, no matter what I try to do, you're going to die, Charlie. I've heard it that way in my head a million times, and I can't say it any other way. No matter what I try to do, you're going to die, Charlie. It's an emotional moment in the show because it seems like Charlie's fate is inevitable. But if I can borrow from Desmond this morning, though, no matter what Satan tries to do, church, we're going to win. No matter what he tries to do, we're going to win because Jesus won. Our victory over sin, death, and Satan himself is inevitable. Like Luther said, one little word shall fell him. We know how the story ends. We can overcome because Jesus overcame. So if we opened your mail... What would it say? The Ephesians mail said, Jesus is pleased with orthodox beliefs, but pained by lethargic love. But he promises paradise to those who overcome. That's my prayer for you this morning. Come back to your first love, because Jesus wins.